Peace. Welcome to the Go Podcast with Jamar Martin. Go as in go harder, go home. Let's go. The title of this episode is Bitcoin Bubbles and Biting. Bitcoin has been trading between 53 and 60,000 the past few weeks. Uh, it's up over 900% in one year. And of course, folks are getting really excited. And the thesis is being sold that Bitcoin, of course, is going to go to 100000 and then possibly to 250000 and then possibly to a million dollars. There's a lot of bullishness out there. There's a lot of excitement. Uh, and there's also a lot of bubble thinking or, you know, speculative gambling thinking as if Bitcoin is going to trade one way. And it's almost a, a guaranteed come up. You know, you've heard that saying when things look too easy, there's probably something wrong with it. But right now, in terms of the last year where an asset goes up, you know, 900% in 12 months, this is a really good short-term investment. If you got in when Bitcoin was trading about $3,800 and you wrote it up to, you know, 53 uh, to 60K, uh, that's a really good short-term return. There's this euphoria out there. The focus of this podcast is not to tell you don't go buy Bitcoin or or sell your Bitcoin. What I want to do is share the risk factors uh, for Bitcoin. So, you know, you can, you know, maybe it could spark some curiosity uh, in terms of the other side that, you know, you can hold on or be a bull for Bitcoin, but it's important for us to understand the other side. And of course, it's important to understand the risk factor. So, you know, if folks are going to invest or hold Bitcoin at around 60,000, it would be beneficial to understand the different factors that can send it back down to 4,000 or lower. I'm not trying to turn you against Bitcoin. I want to be clear. I just want to share the risk factors the other side that the media and a lot of the pumpers, you know, the brokers, uh, the people conflicted in the industry that's holding Bitcoin, they want to get the grandma into Bitcoin. They want to get the kids. They want to get everybody into Bitcoin because they their own position goes up. So, right, their, their narrative is going to be very one-sided. Uh, they're going to be selling Bitcoin as if, it's pure that it doesn't have any defects or flaws or risk factors of course with any bubble you have a lot of charlatans and the greed factor kicks in where folks are selling stuff without giving you all the information and so they're not really selling it in good faith they're just pumping 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 bitcoin's going to go to the moon bitcoin's going to the moon but you know we're going to get into this but often the little person at the end of the bubble when the little person uh, i'm talking about relative income folks who don't have a lot of money to lose but when the little person the retail buyer starts to get in at the end of a bubble cycle they tend to get hurt they tend to get crushed of course the rug is pulled and all these people in the industry the media uh you know the the brokers the investment funds they're all pumping it but when the rug is pulled a lot of people get hurt after a bubble so we're going to go through the the risk factor so the first risk factor uh for bitcoin from my perspective is what i would call origin risk who created bitcoin essentially no one knows so you know when you're thinking about bitcoin as an asset I would call it an X asset. It's unknown. And so no one knows the identity of the person or people who created Bitcoin. Now, there are some suspicions out there that it was created by the U.S. government. Uh, It was created by an agency like the NSA. The founder of Ethereum uh, essentially said he thought Uh, that Bitcoin could have been created uh, by the NSA. He says that things as big as megacorps and governments work against themselves all the time. I wouldn't be be too surprised if the NSA has some part in at least supporting it. And so, of course, the, the pumpers and the cheerleaders of Bitcoin, you know, they act like, you know, this is a people thing. 
you know, the people created Bitcoin and it's for the 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 people to go against the government. So they want to frame Bitcoin as it's like a populist thing. You know, you're banging on the government, you know, Bitcoin against the government. You hear this populist, it's going to help these countries and help poor people and and it's going to do all this populist stuff. And so they think that Bitcoin is taking over and rising and the government is asleep. The government don't know where it came from. And so, you know, I think it's intelligent to consider that you have not outsmarted the U.S. government. There's a reasonable probability that the U.S. government knows where Bitcoin came from and they may have been involved with it. Uh, and so obviously they're not going to tell you that. They're not going to tell us that. But, you know, when there is an asset that's rising to a trillion dollars market cap and you know it's blowing up and you know obviously people it's making it easier for folks to hide gray or dirty money i wouldn't assume that the government doesn't know the origin of bitcoin or is not involved in bitcoin so the one risk factor in terms of the asset is we don't know where bitcoin came from we don't know who created it now, the CEO of a Russian cybersecurity company, Kaspersky Lab, he also suggested that it could have been the American intelligence agencies creating Bitcoin to help process funding to other intelligence agencies without, of course, being detected. It's not like a, a radical view that the U.S. government could have created bitcoin uh and so this is why coinbase which is about to ipo near 100 billion one of the leading crypto exchanges this is why they came out and said um that one of the the risk factors in their ipo prospectus their s1 is that if the identity if someone was able to break that big story or that big information if somebody came out and said i know who created bitcoin if someone uh, was able to identify that actor or actors, uh, that could pose a risk to the thesis because, of course, everyone is leveraged to one side thinking that, oh, it's this great thing that's going to take over the world and it's for the people and it's, you know, against the government and, you know, you're going to be able to have freedom. So if the identity becomes known and it conflicts with the popular narrative of all the cheerleaders and the pumpers where it's easier if it's a spook it's easier if no one knows where it came from but if the identity is becomes known later you know that could crush the price of bitcoin because it, it would just disrupt the, the story it would disrupt the bitcoin religion that people are evangelizing uh, so the first risk factor is origin risk the second risk factor is what I would call a speculative market structure. Essentially, Bitcoin could be a promising asset. It could have strong fundamentals. Uh, it could be a really good investment. However, you know, based on the investment flows, the speculative investment flows that come in, the hot money, the quick money, people wanting to make a quick buck like a casino, if there's a lot of speculative, fast money coming in and that fast casino money where people want to make a lot of money in a short amount of time, if that money comes in, uh, then the market structure could be dominated by folks who don't really have conviction. They're just in for a quick buck, right? It's a lot of hot money and they got it. They have to make the money fast, essentially. They're coming in to make a killing fast. So if the speculative money who don't really, you know, look at Bitcoin as like, hey, I'm holding it like a Warren Buffett or a long term investor because I, I believe in it and I'm going to hold it for 20 or 10 years. That's holding Bitcoin with strong hands with a lot of conviction. The opposite of that is a lot of flows coming in just to kind of go into the next hot thing to make a quick buck. So if the speculative casino gambling type of character becomes a, a dominant supportive factor for Bitcoin, that's a risk. That's a risk factor, because if if the market 
starts to turn, this hot money is going to be rushing for the exits. They're going to try to all be getting out the door at the same time. So, you know, this could set up a collapse of Bitcoin uh, of, you know, 50% or more. Essentially, you know, Bitcoin being cut in half uh, uh, or something more severe, and it stays there for a couple of years. Uh, you know, if you're looking, if you're holding Bitcoin for long term, you have a lot of conviction, that's fine. But if this hot money, speculative money, this more cas casino quick buck money is really, really deep in the market structure of Bitcoin, it's a risk to that asset. Uh, and so, of course, you saw a lot of speculative ac activity with uh, tech stocks in 2000 before the crash. You saw a lot of speculative activity with real estate. Uh, Bitcoin is not an exception. Okay, so this market structure that's underneath Bitcoin, it's creating a big risk for a lot of people getting hurt trying to run out that door at the same time once they see this thing is falling 30 40 50 percent there's speculative market structure uh risk so the third risk uh factor with bitcoin would be regulatory risk you may have seen uh, you know the lawsuit uh by the sec the securities and exchange commission where they sued ripple labs who are the originators of the crypto xrp ripple is doing all this funny stuff uh you know they're going into the market uh, manipulating their own xrp uh coin they're signing deals and they're not disclosing to the xrp folks that they are buying marketing partnerships so you know they'll announce a deal with moneygram but they may have sent moneygram 50 or 75 million and to ripple 50 to 75 million to pay the partner to try their platform. That's nothing because when the bubbleheads see the press release, they're gonna buy. If they're buying, the market cap of XRP could go up, you know, 500 million. There's a lot of this pump activity, uh, our nefarious activity, like with any bubble, uh, where you have so much money in play, you have something new, you have something hot. There's a lot of nefarious actors, a lot of greedy actors that, you know, they bring this fraud element to it or misrepresentations where they're trying to get the, the people hooked into the new thing. And of course, in the 2008 uh, real estate bubble and crash, you had the fraud element there. And so the fraud is in uh, crypto and the Bitcoin ecosystem, too. You have a lot of money. You have a lot of dirty players uh, in the marketplace, but essentially the Bitcoin and crypto uh, uh, coins, they could be used for tax avoidance. Uh, in Switzerland, they used to have uh, bank secrecy laws where they weren't allowed to reveal client names to the IRS or to foreign governments. They were real tight on that, but that was busted up. Okay, so in Switzerland, you can't, it's not easy to hide gray or dirty money in Switzerland anymore. So essentially, folks are going to be looking for tax avoidance uh, or tax fraud. So essentially, they're going to be looking, uh, that one loophole closes, folks will be looking for other loopholes. So in jurisdictions, not just in Switzerland, a lot of the tax loopholes that were used have closed and are closing. And so essentially you would have, you can expect that there's more real flows of money, of dirty and gray money looking to avoid taxes that flows into crypto. If you have fraud, if you have tax avoidance, that would that could bring in the regulators uh, in terms of hey you know we need to know what's going on if you have regulation that's coming it's not like you know it, it's not whether it's going to come it's it's essentially how is it going to come the regulations are coming to Bitcoin and the crypto complex the regulatory risks uh, not just in the United States, but around the world. For example, India is talking about new uh, uh, regulations or possibly banning Bitcoin. Uh, you know, these regulations 
could impact the price where the government comes in and wants to know everything or restricts it. Uh, Ray Dalio, the founder of the world's largest hedge fund, uh, Bridgewater, he said that uh, it's likely that the U.S. government is going to ban Bitcoin. So that's a risk factor to the Bitcoin asset, investment asset. Essentially, you could have very harsh regulations come down uh, that could really you know, send this bubble in a spiral. Uh, it could be gradual regulations, but essentially, uh, I believe it's one of the important risk factors to understand. So the other risk factor, uh, number four, we have environmental risks. I don't have a directional position on, hey, you know, Bitcoin is bad for the environment. Uh, you know, that means Bitcoin uh, is this. I don't have a, a directional point of view in terms of the environmental risk. Uh, what I could say is that there's very smart people who are looking at this. There's very powerful people, influential people who are now looking at the environmental risk of Bitcoin. Uh, essentially, uh, the structure of Bitcoin is that it's mined through uh, computer processing uh, power. So essentially, you yourself can use your computer or use computers to mine Bitcoin. You may not be able to mine much, uh, but folks are building mining centers with hundreds and thousands of machines to mine Bitcoin, to make money like you would mine for gold. Uh, and so when you're running all these computers uh, in these centers, uh, essentially, you know, you're burning energy. You know, it's a lot of processing power that's used to to mine Bitcoin. One report says Bitcoin consumes more electricity than Argentina. Another report uh, has the uh, government in Iran uh, blaming Bitcoin for massive blackouts, meaning it's just it's, it's pressure on their grid. And so when folks are debating on Twitter or YouTube or whatever, you know, they're going back and forth and the Bitcoin pumpers will say, oh, you know, a lot of things uh, use electricity. So, you know, it's no big deal. You don't have to really engage in the debates. You know, you listen or whatever. But to weed out the noise and the biases, obviously, some of these people on both sides, uh, the person attacking Bitcoin, they may have a conflicted interest. They may want clicks or something like that, or you know, they may want some type of media attention in attacking Bitcoin. Uh, they may be mad that they didn't catch the, the Bitcoin bull market. But on the other side, you have the pumpers and the cheerleaders uh, who own Bitcoin. So, you know, the mentality of someone who's conflicted particularly conflicted with size in terms of they a meaningful part of their wealth is invested in uh, Bitcoin. Uh, you know, that mine, it could be so conflicted where they don't care about the environment. So they're not going to be thinking about, hey, you know, let's play this out where, you know, Bitcoin could really become a problem for certain countries with weaker resources for electricity. Uh, or it could just be a problem for the planet as a whole. So in China, they shut down some Bitcoin mining in certain areas. And one of the factors was a concern with the, uh, the weight on the electricity. There's a lot of debating in terms of the impact of Bitcoin on the environment. But one thing you can look at is look in the real world in terms of what's happening and how governments and local communities, they have to respond to something that's real. You know, when you want to get out of ideology and go into the actual facts where, hey, you know, why are these governments shutting down these mining centers? And what are they saying about the electricity weight of these uh, Bitcoin mining farms? If the world was to take a net negative position that Bitcoin in aggregate in terms of the whole ecosystem is harmful to the environment that could cause downside pressure on the bitcoin price this is factor five now we started with origin risk speculative market structure risk regulatory risk number three environmental risk number four uh so number five is crypto inflation what is crypto inflation this essentially 
just like if a government Zimbabwe or Venezuela, they may lose control and the the currency is not worth anything. They've printed so much crypto inflation. Hey, there's new crypto coins being printed every day. Okay, so the market's hot and you have new coins being produced. Uh, new coins that may have better security are superior features than Bitcoin. And so these new cryptos are being produced and it's a form of competition competition and also increased supply. So if you have crypto coins being uh, created every single day and you have people buying these new coins, there's so much crypto supply in the marketplace uh, that could devalue Bitcoin and other coins because there's so many different options. There's so many different cryptos. Uh, and so Bitcoin, the Bitcoiners will say, hey, one of the uh, the big factors or big fundamental factors for Bitcoin is that you can't print a lot of it. Uh, there's a limited supply. Uh, uh, and so that's true. However, Bitcoin could be impacted by the supply of the whole crypto complex. So if you just have nonstop printing and printing of cryptos with new features, really good features, whatever, it's the hot thing. It's going up more than Bitcoin you could have crypto inflation, okay? And that could impact, I believe, the, the price of uh, Bitcoin. Right now, of course, everything is going up together. If Bitcoin goes up, Dogecoin goes up. You know, if Bitcoin goes up, they have a new coin coming out called the Leprechaun coin. Most likely that's gonna go up. So all the cryptos are moving together right now. But that dynamic uh, could change over time. Keep an eye out on um, just nonstop uh, production of more and more coins. Uh, that could be a risk factor for Bitcoin itself and the scarcity uh, argument. The number six would be volatility risk. So the, the Bitcoin cheerleaders and pumpers, some of the real Bitcoin evangelicals, the real fanatical Bitcoin ride or die, folks you know that some of them will say hey you know bitcoin a kid in nigeria or hanoi uh in vietnam uh you know bitcoin allows them to transact easily when there could be you know problems with the currency are you know transacting in their local currency so there's there's a problem with that so you know these bitcoin is helping save the world and it's helping the people so if if i'm in Nigeria or Vietnam and I get paid in Bitcoin and Bitcoin is getting rocked is getting knocked uh you know 10 20 percent or it could be down 30 percent in a week right I may not want to get paid in Bitcoin because the value of my labor or my services uh it's too volatile I can't work uh you know and build up this value and then it could collapse 50 percent like I worked for a certain amount. So if Bitcoin is moving around like crazy, right? It's fine if it's just going up, but we know that Bitcoin is just not gonna go up, you know, crazy, uh, you know, 100, 500%, 900% every year. So if people are getting paid with an asset or a currency that's going up like crazy, fine. You know, in a bubble market, fine, I'll get paid in that. It just keeps on going up and up. But at the end of the day, you know, this is not going to last forever. Uh, so the, the idea that Bitcoin is going to be used as a real currency where you buy things with it, you buy the candy bar, you buy the loaf of bread, uh, you know, you pay for services with Bitcoin, the volatility would have to come down significantly. So essentially, Bitcoin is moving around too much for businesses and people to transact with it at scale uh, over the long term. So the, the Bitcoin cheerleader could, could say, and, and I would agree with them, is that it is possible that the volatility goes down over the long term, that, you know, give Bitcoin a chance, it's still a little kid, and the volatility would go down over the long term. Uh, that is a, a possibility. Uh, there, but essentially, there's volatility risk, and this 
volatility risk is important uh, and related to the next point. So num point number seven would be a shift from speculation from fundamentals. The Bitcoin bulls, when things started, they would talk about the fundamentals. They would talk about using it in the real economy, solving real problems. There's going to be adoption where you use Bitcoin like you use the dollar, uh, like you use the Japanese yen. So you would use it in the real economy every day. Uh, that was a signature piece of the thesis. But, you know, like Ripple and XRP, in terms of the SEC complaint that I read, the Bitcoin cheerleaders and pumpers, uh, they don't talk about the fundamentals anymore. You know what they talk about? They talk about, hey, Jack Dorsey's buying Bitcoin. Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy, is buying hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. His original company product and thesis has nothing to do with Bitcoin. But, you know, essentially he's, he wants to speculate and use the company to buy Bitcoin. So Michael Saylor announces he's buying Bitcoin. The price of Bitcoin goes up. Jack Dorsey uh, says this about Bitcoin. It's going up. Uh, Elon Musk says this about Bitcoin. It's going up. So this pumper mentality where the price of Bitcoin is very sensitive to folks buying the asset. But, you know, essentially no one is talking about the real world adoption, the fundamental case of Bitcoin in terms of turning into something that could compete with the dollar or the Japanese yen. So the narrative has changed with the Bitcoin uh, crowd, with a significant uh, piece of the Bitcoin crowd, where essentially it's all about institutions, Goldman Sachs or Fidelity or, you know, it's all about who's buying, what institutions are adopting it as a speculative investment asset. They're not talking about on the ground adoption and use of Bitcoin in the real world as a real currency. So you see this shift. And so when you see the aggressive shift in terms of the thesis like that, you know, you have to start asking questions about why why has it been such a shift? You know, in terms of price, if something is going to go up to a million dollars, you would prefer that the fundamentals around real world adoption, consumer and business adoption in terms of using Bitcoin, that that's really the big piece of the story. When the big piece of the story just comes to who's buying and, you know, how much the price is moving you get more into the speculative realm. You get more into the casino fast money realm. A risk factor for Bitcoin is essentially no one is talking about things outside of price and who's buying, uh, what celebrity, uh, what entrepreneur, what investor, uh, what institution is buying Bitcoin or starting to believe in Bitcoin. They want to make money, right? The more speculative stuff, that you have in the narrative of Bitcoin, the bigger uh, the risk. So, you know, I want to note uh, that shift uh, from real world fundamentals, real world currency to speculation. You know, who's pumping, who's buying, what institution is investing. Uh, I want to move on to the next B, uh, which is bubble. And I'm going to keep this one pretty short. But I want to talk about Joseph Kennedy, the father of the American president, JFK Jr. So in 1929, he was a, a big Wall Street uh, investor. Uh, and, you know, he went to go get his shoes uh, shine. And the shoe shine boy started giving him uh, or talking to him about stocks, uh, stock tips. And Joseph Kennedy said, hey, in terms of market cycles and how this thing works, that if the shoeshine boy is giving me, Joseph Kennedy, tips, and I have insider information, I know the banks, I know the major players. If the shoeshine boy is really getting into the stock market, it's probably towards the end of the cycle. Right. It's probably going to crash pretty soon. I don't know when it's going to crash, but it looks it's probably the odds are 
are in favor that when the shoeshine boy starts to get excited about the market, uh, this market is likely, this bubble is going to turn, right? This bull market is about to turn, uh, just in terms of the psychology and nature of the markets. I thought about this. I read so many headlines about kids uh, trading uh, and, you know, there's parents on Twitter bragging about their kids trading and you have entrepreneurs, you know, bragging about they made some money on Tesla, this and that. And they're riding, they're getting into this bubble and this bubble is running real hot. Right. And so I know folks who, you know, they want to become traders now, uh, you know, friends and family members who weren't in the markets, but they see the bubble and the returns and they want to become traders. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with kids wanting to learn about markets or investing uh, from my point of view. Uh, however, if you're going to introduce uh, kids or your family and friends or yourself, if you get introduced to the markets in a bubble that's running real hot, running very speculative casino like uh, with outrageous returns, your introduction to it uh, may become a problem later where you get in at the top of a bubble where valuations, they don't matter. Uh, cash, profits, real stuff, it's not going to go up like fake stuff. You know, the less revenue, the less profits, the less cash you have, you know, the more debt you have, the higher the returns in a really, really sick bubble that, that we're in now. Uh, it's the opposite of what you should have. Essentially, the investor wants that 100%, 200% return in a year. And so the money starts to go to really hot stuff that's very speculative, that doesn't have a lot of substance underneath it yet. Folks are taking more and more risks. So if you come into this type of risk environment where things seem easy and they're very bubbly, when the market turns, it could turn the people off because they didn't really learn the fundamentals of investing, that markets are not really one way. They just got in towards the end of a massive bubble. And so after each crash, people are turned off. People lose a lot of money. Uh, you know, people don't like the markets because they got really excited. They may have leveraged up uh, and then the crash hits them. You know, uh, it's like a shock to them that the market crashes. Uh, and so, so, you know, the people never really learn the fundamentals of investing. They learn the fundamentals of trading and, and most likely getting lucky towards the end of a bubble. But, you know, when we're learning things, uh, you know, what I would say is that when you're learning something, uh, it's ideal to learn it in a way where it can scale. Kids trading and, you know, all this this, this stuff that's going on, it's not going to be sustainable. This stuff is going to end really, really bad. I want to reference, of course, uh, Joseph Kennedy, just in terms of market cycles. Uh, you know, we know that markets go in cycles, right? And then there's a party and then that party ends. And usually... You know, when that party ends, it's it's like uh, uh, it's breaking up. The police are in the fire departments coming in. It's nasty. People lose a lot of money at the end of these bubbles. You have people at the end of these cycles. You have people like Joseph Kennedy who will see the psychology change and see that, you know, hey, these Hollywood celebrities are, are rappers and the kids, they're all getting into the bubble, right? They'll see this and they've been around the block. They've seen a lot of different bubbles. They, they've studied bubbles. They've lost money in bubbles. So they have deep experience. So they'll see this stuff going on and they'll see the valuations where things, people don't care about valuations and cash anymore. They don't care about fundamentals. They'll see all this stuff going on and they'll say, okay, uh, you know, we're going to start lightening up our positions. Okay. Uh, this looks like, you know, we're towards the end of the cycle. And so when these big wallets and institutions, when they start thinking like Joseph Kennedy in terms of, all right, this bubble's out of control, 
they can start putting weight on the market, essentially starting to sell down, not sell their whole portfolio, but move into more conservative names, more uh, cash generative names, uh, more proven names. And so, you know, they can start what they call distribution. They can start shifting their portfolio to more conservative uh, stocks and investments or just a more conservative uh, posture or let's say a less risk or less speculative posture or less less speculative orientation or in Joseph Kennedy's case he flipped and shorted and him and his clique in terms of I got to think at that time uh, uh, investing was more collusive where folks worked together, they shared information, particularly the big people at the top. So when Joseph Kennedy starts to back out that market in 1929, uh, him and his network, his elite network, they could have put pressure in terms of uh, contributing to the conditions of the crash. Meaning they're putting weight on the crash because before the crash happens, they start to sell. And Joseph Kennedy said, our, our Joseph Kennedy, the record shows that he actually bet against the market and made money when that bubble popped. You have to be thinking that when people see all this craziness, they have these uh, NFTs, uh, non-fungible tokens. Uh, here's the definition. NFTs are non-fungible tokens are a special kind of crypto asset in which each token is unique as opposed to fungible assets like Bitcoin and dollar bills, which are all worth exactly the same amount. Because every NFT is unique, they can be used to authenticate ownership of digital assets like artworks, recordings, and virtual real estate are pets. Ja Rule just sold an NFT of some artwork related to the fire Festival. You know, it was fraudulent. But essentially, he's selling NFTs, and folks are now buying NFTs, spaces in imaginary houses. Folks are getting real kind of bubble headish in terms of buying stuff that has at a minimum questionable value you know the nfts are exploding and everyone wants to get into nfts and part of a bubble is that apple no longer looks interesting uh netflix doesn't know it doesn't look interesting anymore bitcoin uh tesla it no longer looks interesting because why would i get into Tesla, when I can get into Leprechaun or NFT and I can make 500%. So the hot money is finding new hot stuff to speculate in. And so the bubble just goes on and on. And as the bubble progresses, the due diligence declines. So for example, with SPACs, short stories is a backdoor way to go public essentially investors they group up raise money and then they go buy a private company uh, it's an easier way to go public without the loops the cost and the due diligence uh, so certain companies they wouldn't be able to go public the traditional way so a SPAC allows them to kind of go in through the back door with a lower due diligence threshold with less uh, discriminating uh, investors who are going to be looking at all the different details. SPACs are the new thing, but with each bubble, you'll see that there's a downgrade of due diligence. So companies are able to go public, not the traditional way, or they're not going public the traditional way. They're going public through SPACs. Of course, in the real estate bubble and crisis, you saw the downgrading of due diligence in terms of FICO scores, no docs. So, you know, in a bubble, particularly at the end, you start to see the loosening of standards where stuff starts to price aggressively at the same time the due diligence is downgraded. Ideally, the price goes up as the due diligence. Hey, this checks out. You know, we're really looking at all the details. So maybe you put a premium on the price. A real extreme bubble works opposite. Essentially, the price is going to be really, really high as you downgrade the due diligence. For example, with the crypto complex, for example. Very low due diligence, very, very high market cap. When you see Dogecoin uh, was created as a joke, and of course, Elon Musk uh, pumped the coin and people started buying. Hey, Elon Musk tweets about it. That means it's a good investment, so I'm going to buy Dogecoin. 
you know, maybe I can make some quick money. New York Times, uh, it was reported yesterday, they created an NFT as a joke, some type of article, uh, digital asset, and it was just a joke, and it sold for half a million dollars. We have a lot of bubblehead activity out there. From my point of view, this bubble uh, most likely doesn't have another 12 months left. Uh, you know, obviously no one knows when the bubble is going to pop. But the type of bubblehead activity I'm seeing, I don't need to know. You know, you don't need necessarily to, to study financial markets and bubble cycles and economic cycles to know that something is very, very wrong out there. Something stinks out there. And that I'm expecting uh, that the Joseph Kennedys of today, they're going to start leaning on this market. They're going to start selling. Not necessarily, you know, selling in paranoia or selling all their portfolio, but they're going to start uh, adjusting their positioning because they've been around the block. You know, they, they've seen the crashes. They've seen the bubbles and they know what type of greed and personality, what type of environment shows up towards the end uh, of a bubble. The last B I want to talk about is Joe Biden. Joe Biden, you know, I don't really have anything negative to say about Joe Biden. To tell you the truth, folks could be on Twitter or just, you know, bashing Joe Biden for various reasons. You know, bash, bash, bash Joe Biden. From my perspective, Joe Biden is being Joe Biden. Uh, you know, he never said that he was a Bernie Sanders. He never said that. He was going to fight like hell before uh, he won. He never said he's the type of person that he's going to fight like hell to deliver you a 2K stimmy if he says he's going to deliver you a 2K stimmy. Uh, and so he was very explicit. And he said, look, I'm not Bernie Sanders. Okay. He was very straight up with you. He said, I'm not Bernie Sanders. I'm Joe Biden. You know Joe Biden. And when he was saying, you know Joe Biden, he's telling you that, you know, he's not a change figure. Okay. This, he's not a person that would have a lot of conviction and take a lot of risk, particularly as it relates to black America. Uh, and so Joe Biden, when he's saying, look, I'm not Bernie Sanders, I'm Joe Biden. He's telling you, I'm the guy that supported the Iraq war. I'm the guy that was the Steve Jobs of mass incarceration. I'm the guy that built my political career off of political profit in terms of siding with the police, the police unions, uh, in the private prisons, uh, and the MAGA voters uh, who love, you know, that tough on crime uh, posture. I'm that guy. Joe Biden was saying that I'm that guy. And so, you know, it's important f for us. I'm talking black America. Uh, it's important for us to know who Joe Biden is and who Joe Biden isn't. Because there are biases out there where, you know, you hate MAGA so much or you hate Trump so much. That means Biden is good. No, you can be in fierce opposition to Trump and MAGA and you acknowledge who Joe Biden is today, okay? You don't give him extra credit like he's a white Jesus. You don't give him credit that he doesn't deserve. Joe Biden should have to earn credit based on his moral and racist debt with black America. He has debts on the books with black America in terms of what he has done. Joe Biden is the same Joe Biden of yesterday. Okay. He may be doing things in some areas that may be considered more progressive than Obama or, you know, he wants to do a, a bigger stimulus deal or, or do this differently than Obama, but we have to consider the time. So it's easier to do certain things now than it was 
in my view, for Obama. Joe Biden is coming at a time where the Bernie Sanders movement uh, is very strong. It's very influential in the Democratic uh, Party. So it's not like Joe Biden has these big convictions, uh, but a lot of the you know, good stuff that he would do, uh, you got to understand it's from pressure from the other side of the Democratic Party. It's not necessarily just, I want to, you know, be a good guy and look after this issue and that issue, that the type of career politician Joe Biden is, is he's going to wait and see what's acceptable and what's politically convenient for him and his network, you know. And so I want to leave you with this on Joe Biden. He said that he told the Wall Street donors that nothing is going to change. Give me the money. I leave. Don't be a menace uh, when the preacher says, uh, just give me the money. Uh, Joe Biden told the Wall Street donors, just give me the money and nothing's going to change. You can look it up yourself. He told the big donors Nothing is really going to change. And, you know, it's very important that we understand not the politics in the front. We got to understand the politics in the back. Okay. Where the money is at. The president and politicians in general, they have to answer to someone. They have to answer to folks that you don't see in the back. Okay. My intellectual flaw in 2008 with Barack Obama was I was so excited on the political religion of that time uh, in terms of the idea of uh, someone that I knew had read the, the final call, someone who came from Reverend Wright's church. I looked at a lot of the symbolic factors, uh, and of course I was optimistic but the intellectual flaw i had in 2008 was i didn't really inspect the cabinet of barack obama who the people that he would hire i didn't inspect that i didn't inspect the politics in the back i was just going off the politics in the front like many of you if i would have inspected uh the politics in the back, I would have known that the big banks, the pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, the big Silicon Valley, big tech people, Google, Facebook, that Barack Obama structured his cabinet early on for the swamp and elites, meaning it was never structured uh, to be progressive. It wasn't, it was structured for elites and kind of do some of the same stuff and actually make the the racial and in, income inequality worse uh, in the United States. When you look at when you look at the Geithner, the Larry Summers, you know the Eric Holder, uh, who you know represented uh, Purdue Pharma, which we've talked about on this uh, podcast, our uh, UBS. That when you look at the Obama cabinet this is the corporate confederacy these are the people who are running america so it wouldn't be intelligent for me or anyone else in my view to expect anything from obama based on how he was structured who he had to report and answer to uh and so it just wouldn't be intelligent for me uh, looking back to expect anything because the way he structured his advisors and cabinet, who those people were in terms of lobbyists and they're connected to the ruling class, nothing's going to change. When it's structured like that, you shouldn't be acting like a Santa Claus or Christmas in terms of hoping for something that's not structured for, you know, material change. So you don't get into a political religion with Obama or something else or Biden when you start inspecting what's on the inside, the facts, and how things are structured, okay? So when you look at Biden in terms of folks from the military-industrial complex, uh, lobbyists and big tech, when you look at the folks that are in his cabinet, you shouldn't be overreaching and expecting something substantial. 
that I don't think that would be intelligent because he's not structured that way. When you inspect his advisors, such as his chief of staff, Ron Klain, uh, Ron Klain, uh, if you're not familiar with him, the Biden chief of staff, he's the one who let the police write the crime bill. Uh, Biden brought him back, who helped, of course, Ron Klain helped him with the politics of the crime bill. And of course, the record shows that the police wrote the crime bill. And Biden and Ron Klain uh, sat right there and allowed the police to write the crime bill. Didn't really consider uh, how lopsided a bill like that could be uh, if the police, the police unions, uh, they're allowed to just write the bill. You're not in the room. Just Ron Klain, Biden, and the police. So, you know, I want to leave you with this, uh, with Biden is, I wouldn't expect anything, a goddamn thing from Biden, okay? He told his donors nothing is really going to change. And he structured his administration and cabinet in a way that nothing is likely to change. Obama gave you hope, you know, hope, change we can believe in, you know, all these kind of terms. You don't want to go back to sleep in thinking that Biden is going to do something different. These Biden and Obama, in a way, are like the same political animal. Essentially, who they answer to is not going to be you. They are structured with the status quo establishment, the corporate confederacy, the folks who have been running America and will continue to run America. And on that note, in terms of inspecting things like, hey, what are you talking about? You don't know what you're talking about. Well, let me say this. Mark Andreessen, the billionaire in Silicon Valley, uh, the venture capitalist in Silicon Valley and the uh, co-founder of Netscape, uh, he said, you can look this up. He said that when he met Obama, when he was running for president, he said he talked to him and looked in his eyes and he said that this guy is no radical. This guy is not going to do shit. This guy is going to kind of protect the status quo. So the elites with the money, they looked and talked to Obama in 2007, 2008, and they said that this guy is not going to change shit. Of course, a lot of our people, we are optimistic people. We want to see ourselves. We want to believe. But the insiders, the real smart and money ones, they knew that Barack Obama wasn't going to do shit. He wasn't going to change anything. And they put it on the record. They put it on the record in real time. They, taught, they were checking him out. The rulers were checking Obama out. And they said they had conversations with him. And they said that this guy poses no risk to the system. He was pretty, in my own words, pretty much, he's going to keep things much of the same. He's not going to kind of restructure things. He may say that in his speeches and suggest that there's some big change coming. But Mark Andreessen in Silicon Valley and his people said that he wasn't going to change shit and we're going to back him. You can look that up and that's in the public record. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamal and Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L. Dom.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.